Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Gary Forsyth makes a fifth appearance on the show. In the past, Dr. Forsyth was on the show and we covered the myths and legends of the founding of Rome. Then in another episode, we had a conversation about the transition period when Rome went from a kingdom to a republic. Then on July 18th, 2021, we created an episode that had a chronological format to it. We chatted about and explored what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the 5th century BCE, so the 400s. Then on July 30th, 2021, we created an episode that acted as a sequel to that 5th century episode and we explored what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the early 4th century BCE. So for the most part that was the period of 399 to 350 BCE. In today's episode Dr. Forsyth is back on the show and we're going to explore what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the late 4th century BCE. So in this episode, it's going to act very much like a sequel to the last episode on the early 4th century. And so predominantly the time period today is 349 to 300 BCE. Dr. Forsyth is Associate Professor in the Department of History at Texas Tech University based in the US. He's the author of nine books, including authoring the book, A Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War which was published by the University of California Press. And Dr. Forsyth joins the show today from the state of Texas in the U.S. Welcome back on the show, Gary. Hello, I'm back. Yep, thank you very much. Okay, so the episode that we did, Gary, on the 5th century, we approached that conversation, compartmentalizing it into... uh, what Rome was doing in that century from a military affairs perspective and then also a domestic affairs perspective. So so in large part that episode had two different sections. In the last episode that we did, we covered it not so much from a, uh, those two sections uh, kind of delineated in that way, but instead from a chronology perspective. So you treated very largely the around 399 down to 3, 350. Um, and then covering both domestic and and uh, military affairs um, in that. So when it comes to this episode, so we're going to speak about and explore what scholars know about the Roman Republic in the late 4th century. So for the most part, 349 to 300 BCE. Do you want to compartmentalize the chat like we did uh, with the 5th century episode? Or do you want to um, uh, go through the episode and, and treat it in a chronological fashion like we did in the last episode? Um, I think we'll proceed um, both chronologically and I guess thematically the um, things that really dominate the later part of the fourth century or three war and so we'll cover those and then uh, uh, we may be able to then uh, turn our attention to um, something on the domestic scene. Okay, so let's. Uh, where, where do you want to s- start then? So, if you want to start with the military affairs, you said there's three. There's three major events that are, that occur. So, what what comes first? 
Okay, so the three wars are the first Samnite War, 343 to 341, very short. And right after that comes what we call the Latin War, 340 to 338. And then we have something of a gap, and then we come to the third Samnite, excuse me, the second Samnite War, the longest of the three Samnite Wars, and it begins at 326 and goes down to 304. Um, so if we, if we start off at, let's say, 350 and just sort of take a look at what, what's going on with Rome, Rome is still, um, well, it's, 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 it's a decent-sized state at this point, but it has been growing a little bit by little bit. It grew very, very slowly over the course of the 5th century. Uh, they had a few modest <clears throat> acquisitions, actually a pretty sizable acquisition of territory in the 90s with the conquest of Bay. Um, but, uh, and, and it continued to grow a little bit in size and strength during the, the, the first part of the 300s. So when we get to about 350, uh, Rome is still, um, it's, it's the largest state in central Italy, but it still hasn't become really, really, really big yet. And it's about ready to take two really big steps, and that, that's these first two wars, uh, the First Samnite War and the, uh, and the Latin War. Uh, and, and once Rome wraps up the Latin War in 338 BC, then we see that Rome, the, the size of Rome has grown substantially, uh, we, and we can see Rome is really now to expand very rapidly um, and um, within a couple of generations is going to become the unquestioned dominant state throughout Italy. <clears throat> okay, so uh, the Samnites uh, were this uh, people living up in the central and southern Apennine Mountains of Italy. They were a landlocked uh, people. Uh, they lived in a very a pretty harsh uh, environment and uh, got along by uh, doing what a uh, little agriculture that the, the mountain areas could support. Uh, but a lot of it was um, basically uh, raising uh, herd animals. Uh, and they, they seemed to have lived in pretty small settlements and villages. And at the time that the Romans waged their wars against the Samnites, the, the, uh, the Samnites um, uh, were not at the sort of same city-state level uh, organization as, as were the Romans. Um, so they, they were sort of much more diffuse uh, in terms of their uh, their organization. Uh, so, and, and they were a population that, that periodically um, was larger than what, what the meager resources of their land could support. And so, Going with, uh, back several generations, so we hear from uh, uh, our sources of information that, that there were uh, periods in which uh, portions of the Samnite population would come down out of the mountains, uh, down to the more fertile uh, agricultural areas, and uh, would uh, uh, either be peacefully or not very peacefully absorbed into um, the, uh, the, the lowlands, uh, and this, this often created conflict between Samnites uh, and their, their lowland neighbors, and that's, that's what brings on the first Samnite War, uh, when uh, some Samnites uh, came down into the northern area 
of Campania, uh, the, the, the large, very flat and very fertile area uh, surrounding it. They have Naples uh, area <clears throat> attacked a small community there uh, that uh, was um, associated with the larger community of Capua, which was located in northern uh, Campania. And uh, Capua felt as if it was uh, not uh, might not be strong enough to hold out against uh, Samite aggression. So they turned to Rome uh, and asked for an alliance with the Romans, and eventually the Romans did give them an alliance uh, and uh, gave them uh, support against the Samnites. And there was a very brief war fought. And the details of the, of the war are, are not very uh, uh, reliable as, as recorded in, in Livy. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the conflict was settled after just a couple of years of fighting. And then in uh, 341, when the war ended, uh, the association between the Rome and Capua was now cemented and took on a rather peculiar form. Uh, at this time, we think Capua was probably a state about the size of Rome. Uh, and um, um, instead of just having a sort of standard defensive, offensive, bilateral alliance between two equal sovereign states, what happened is that the association between Capua and Rome was a bit closer than that. They actually worked out a kind of a, a partially shared citizenship arrangement, what in, what in uh, ancient Greek terms would, would have been called isopolitea or isopolitea. Uh, and in uh, uh, the way it worked was that, that anyone who came to Rome um, from a, a capitalist Campanian um, uh, state would be treated as Roman citizens um, in, in all respects of, of, of law, except they didn't have the right to vote in Roman elections and vice versa. Uh, any Romans who happen to be uh, in Campania under um, Kaplan uh, control, they were treated basically the same way. And the uh, uh, designation that the Romans gave for this uh, particular status, which they used from time to time uh, during this time period, was called Kiwes Sine Suffragio, C-I-V-E-S, meaning citizens, Sine, S-I-N-E, meaning without, Suffragio, S-U-F-F-R-I-G-I-O, meaning the citizens without the vote. So they were treated as citizens, but they just couldn't vote in uh, uh, elections. So that, that, was, um, that was a brief war, and it had a major um, change for Rome in that it brought about this um, sort of a quasi-merger, as it were, between Rome and Capua. And uh, as a result of that, Made Rome a, a much more um, state. In that war, Gary, is it is it clear to scholars in the records if there was a victor in that in that um, in that war, and is it known if a peace treaty, some kind of treaty, was signed between the um, the, the Samnites community? And uh, and and Rome and uh, if Capua was involved as well in Capua. Well, we, we know about the, uh, the the particular terms of the treaty not from 
one of the, in this connection, basically just talks about there being um, um, a, a, an agreement made between Capua and Rome. Uh, we know about the particulars as a result of later circumstances uh, where we have slightly more reliable information and it becomes pretty clear to us that uh, Rome and Capua, uh, when they entered into an agreement, had this uh, sort of citizenship sharing arrangement. Oh, and what I meant um, spe uh, more specifically with that question was the the war fought between the Samnites people and on one side and then Rome and Capua on the other side. Is it known who the victor of that war was and if there was a treaty between those those parties in terms of resolving the war and what would happen afterwards? Well, the way that uh, Living describes it, he's really our only source of information. The Samnites started the whole thing by attacking a small community that was in the capital. And then it turns to Rome. Uh, and then the, uh, Rome and Capua, as it were, then unite in fighting against the Samnites. Uh, and about two years of fighting, um, the small community, there's, a, there's a, basically a cessation of hostilities agreed on, on the side of, on, on the two sides. Uh, and, and the Samnites uh, emerged from the war uh, by taking over this little town that they had uh, attacked uh, to begin with. Uh, uh, but, but there's a cessation of hostilities between the Samnites on the one side and, and Capua on, on the other side. Okay, uh, for the for the sake of all, all the items we're going to cover today in under under an hour, um, does that do you believe that sufficiently covers the uh, the first war, the first Samnite war? Yes. Okay. What do you want to cover next? You had said the Latin War from three forty to three thirty eight. Yeah, because the Latin War is an immediate out, uh, outgrowth of the first Samnite War. I mean, this time Rome have clearly become pretty big dog in, in central Italy. Um, and uh, the, the other smaller Latin states that over the course of the 5th century and the early 4th century had been um, cooperating with Rome against any um, common neighbors, the, the smaller Latin states now realize that Rome has, has really taken a big step and that the Latin, the smaller Latin states now fear um, that they will eventually be taken over or absorbed by Rome. And so they uh, banded together in an attempt to uh, forestall any such uh, steps taken by the Romans. But it immediately precipitated a war between Rome uh, and, and these Latin uh, states. It, it was uh, about as brief as the Samnite War lasted about three years. And when it ended, uh, Rome did what the Latin states had actually feared. Uh, this time there were about oh, maybe um, nine or ten uh, Latin communities, uh, and the, the, the Romans um, now extended Roman citizenship to all of the small Latin states except for the larger two. Um, and um, uh, absorbed their territory into 
Rome's territory. So by 338, what happens is the uh, Latin communities uh, now are converted into uh, parts of the uh, growing Roman state. The uh, inhabitants of those uh, communities are now Roman citizens, and their territory has now been merged into the territory of the Roman state. So, so now the Romans have taken a pretty big step in um, expanding the size of their uh, territory. And to give you some uh, a notion of that, um, one of the, uh, the early uh, the early 20th century uh, German uh, historians of ancient Rome, a guy named Cornelius uh, Belloc, did a whole lot of sort of demographic estimates on uh, Roman population and uh, territorial size and that, that sort of stuff. And he estimated that, let's say, by about 400 BC, uh, the size of Roman territory uh, was about was uh, about 960, I think it was 960 uh, square kilometers. Then, uh, and then when Rome takes over Bay in 396, um, it had an increase of territory of about 60%. He, he thinks that Roman territory uh, then goes up to about five, uh, 1,510 uh, square kilometers. And then at the end of the Latin War in 338, um, the Roman territory now had more than tripled. It was now up to about what he estimates to be 5,289 um, square kilometers. So that, 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 that's really quite substantial um, in, in terms of an ancient state, uh, in, and especially in Italy at, at this particular time. So Rome is now poised uh, at a point in terms of its size, its increase of its manpower, um, to be able to undertake some really major wars that, if conducted successfully, are going to uh, continue uh, Rome's expansion. And that's exactly what happens now over the uh, two um, centuries. The Latin communities that gained Roman citizenship um, either either gained or it was forced upon them. Um, please share uh, how you how you think about that in in, in your response. Um, do 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 you know or is it inferred if they would have seen acquiring Roman citizenship as a as as a as a good thing? What would what would the sentiment have been uh, around that? We have no way of knowing. Okay. And the larger two that um, Rome did not extend that same arrangement to, the, the larger two Latin communities, is it known why? Yes. Um, one of them was called Primeste, P-R-A-E-N-E-S-T-E. -E. It's modern-day Palestrina. Uh, in Italy, um, and the other one was called Tibur, T-I-B-U-R, um, modern-day Tivoli, uh, which is um, the place where centuries later the Emperor Hadrian set up a large, spread-out uh, sort of suburban estate with all sorts of uh, buildings and things uh, whose architecture imitated uh, that uh, famous uh, places around the Mediterranean that he had toured. Um, but anyway, these two states had actually, they had always been sort of the, um, the, 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 the bigger Latin
largest. Uh, Tibor and Pernesti were a bit larger, and all the other uh, Latin states were much smaller. And in fact, if you go back to the previous lecture um, that we had on the, the first part of the, the fourth century, uh, I talked about how uh, in the year 380, Pernesti had put together a coalition of some smaller states with itself uh, and brought on a war between Pernesti and Rome. Rome succeeded in breaking up that um, sort of little coalition that Pernesti had put together. So we see already uh, that really that there was um, sort of rivalry going on within the Latin uh, communities. Um, and uh, same thing happened with Tibor that I mentioned in that same lecture in 358. Uh, Tibor was attempting to increase its strength and actually use the um, phenomenon of the availability of uh, of Gallic mercenaries that have been sort of prowling around in Italy um, for the past uh, generation or two uh, to uh, try to strengthen themselves against Rome. They again were, were defeated. Uh, so, the, so the Latin War of 340 to 338 is sort of the, the, the very ending of that uh, sort of rivalry inside the, uh, the Latin states. Uh, in, in Rome, instead of absorbing Prynestia and Timor, instead established uh, bilateral alliances between Rome and Tibor, between Rome and, and Praeneste, so that Tibor and Praeneste continued uh, down to the time of the Social War uh, to be uh, nominally independent states of Rome. Yeah, and for everyone listening, the, the show is covering a series right now on the Social War that Dr. Forsyth just cited there which occurred from 91 to 87 BCE. So the podcast is covering each, each year of those five years chronologically. A, um, uh, the second year, so years one and two, has been covered uh, and is findable online. And the, the show has covered the, the Samnites in a couple different episodes as well. If um, anyone hasn't heard those yet and are interested in learning more about uh, those communities, on the Italian peninsula. Do you want to go to the, uh, Gary, do you want to go to the third war in the uh, in the period that you wanted to cover today? Yes, yeah, we'll move on now to the second Samnite War. So the, the, the Rome was um, um, engaged in some very minor conflicts during the three, rest of the 330s. Um, but the next really major um, War is the Second Samnite War that begins in 326, then like 22 years, all the way down to 304. Um, and it, it was a war that went through several, that actually went, goes through uh, basically uh, three phases. Um, the, the earliest phase was uh, 326 to 321. The war starts out in the, the Samnites and the Romans are fighting. Uh, one another, um, and they, that, that first phase ends in 321 BC, a very humiliating uh, defeat um, by the, uh, of the Romans, by the Samnites. Um, it's known as the uh, uh, surrender of the Claudian Forks. The Claudian Forks was like a, like a canyon um, somewhere in, the, in, 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 Sam, in Sam Lake territory. We think we know where it's located. Um, but anyway, what happened was that the 
uh, two consuls, two Roman consuls of the year were sent out with Roman forces, uh, and the uh, Samnites succeeded in luring them into a uh, like a long, narrow canyon area, and what that the Roman forces were all down in the canyon area. They succeeded in blocking the um, the, the two places, the only two places uh, through which the Romans could, could exit. So the, the Romans surrender um, on the spot, and the Samnites um, force the Romans um, under the yoke. This this was a, apparently a, a, a ritual that was practiced among the Italian peoples in, in the early days. And here's how here's how it went. Um, they would place two spears vertically in the ground, relatively close together, sort of a, enough for a person to walk through. Then they would form, they would take a third spear and tie it across the top of the two spears and form like a little doorway. Um, and each soldier had to walk up uh, to this thing. This, this was called a yoke. Um, <clears throat> would have to then uh, lay down all of his weaponry uh, and then walk through that doorway uh, and come out on the uh, on the other side unarmed, uh, and this is done for all members of the uh, of the Roman uh, forces as a uh, clear demonstration of their, their submission to the uh, uh, to the Roman. Okay, so this this was such a humiliation uh, for the Romans that um, by the late Republic, some Roman historians were writing such uh, patriotic versions of Roman history that they took it upon themselves to like rewrite the events of this particular episode in Roman history. So they uh, they agreed, or they, 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 they did agree with the uh, um, idea that, yeah, the Romans' uh, consuls surrendered, the Romans were sent under a yoke, but then when the idea of a truce came back to Rome to be ratified by the state, um, the Senate and the Roman people rejected it, so there wasn't a truce. And then these late Roman historians uh, fabricated this, um, the, the next two years of the war, describing how the, the, the Romans immediately marched out with a new army uh, and, and wreaked uh, immediate and complete revenge upon the Samnites by defeating them and forcing them to, under, to go under the yoke. And only after that did the Roman generously grant a truce to the Samnites. <laughs> so so that, that's, that's how they rewrote the story. Um, so, but anyway, the, uh, but following the uh, Caudite Forks disaster, there, there was a cessation of hostilities for a few years. <clears throat> and um, so then, then we come to the... Um, um, the next phase of, of the war, um, and uh, the hostilities resumed in 316. Nothing much was done there. Uh, but then in 315, uh, there was another uh, major battle between the two sides, and this time the Samnites scored a, a devastating defeat uh, against the Romans at a place called Lautuli, L-A-U-T-U-L-A-E, located on the western Italian Close a very narrow space where there was a, it's almost kind of like a Thermopylae where there was a, a very narrow uh, area between the uh, mountains and, and the seacoast. Um, and um, 
that the Romans were very heavily defeated in, in this uh, battle, uh, and one of the two commanders uh, of the Roman forces were killed, um, and uh, it, it was a huge setback for the Romans. In fact, the very next year, in 314, we uh, have evidence that the uh, Romans were experiencing defections uh, from um, some of the uh, places that had been on the on the Roman side. So the Romans were really sort of scrambling to uh, to overcome that that feat. But uh, following the defeat of, of Lautoli, uh, we then enter upon the uh, sort of the third and final phase of the war, uh, in which the, the Romans seem to have uh, overcome their their problems in fighting against the Samnites, and eventually. Um, defeat the, the Samnites repeatedly uh, and eventually succeed in emerging victorious uh, from the uh, uh, from from the war. Um, and there's some very interesting things that emerged during the last few years of this war, beginning around 312 and 311, uh, on to the end of the war that ends in 304. Uh, one of the things that we see is that Romans um, now are using colonization um, as, a, as a major means of establishing control in um, sort of frontier areas where they're fighting against uh, their enemies. In fact, during the period 338, the end of the Latin War, down to 264, when the Romans finally secured their uh, hold on Italy, um, a period of about 40-some years, they <clears throat> established 16 colonies. It's about colony every three years, and that is just a truly remarkable uh, phenomenon. So by the time that the uh, Second Samnite War has ended, the Romans have established a number of very important uh, military outposts in the form of colonies um, on, the, uh, on the northern uh, and eastern um, Southern parts of, of Samnium, as well as uh, allying themselves with the uh, peoples in those areas. So by the time that the war comes to an end successfully for the Romans in 304, the Samnites have been pretty much surrounded uh, by Roman colonies and by Roman allies. So there's only one area along sort of the southwest area of Samnium that has not yet been secured uh, by the Romans. That's one thing we see. Second thing we see happening is that the Romans now begin their um, uh, policy that they extend uh, for the next several centuries uh, uh, in the um, uh, practice of road building. Uh, and road building for the Romans um, was very important because it allowed uh, Romans to move their forces uh, and their supplies um, more easily uh, and, and more quickly. Uh, and so the, the first uh, such road that we hear about uh, is the, the famous Via Appia in the Appian Way that uh, began in Rome and uh, first went down to uh, Capua. Uh, and a few years after that, in 306, the Romans began a second uh, road, which was um, um, the, the Via Valeria um, that went from Rome over to Tibur uh, and then up into the central Apennine Mountains to sort of secure an area running up along the northern side of the uh, Samnite uh, territory. Uh, so those are two very important things that we see emerging from the war, that the Romans are learning how to uh, use these things uh, 
as instruments of, of expansion uh, in, in the increase of their, their empire. Uh, the last important thing that we see happening in the war uh, comes in the year 311 when Livy tells us that in that year the Romans for the first time elected 16 military tribunes. Uh, they, these were uh, sort of like the junior officers serving under consuls uh, in, the, in the legions. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, uh, Livy tells us that back in 362, about 50 years uh, earlier, the Romans were electing six military tributes a year. Um, and what we think, at least what I think, happened, what, was, what was happening here is that back in 362, the normal Roman annual military uh, levy probably consisted of only two legions, one from each of the two consuls, uh, and that three uh, military tribunes were assigned to each of the legions. When we get down to 311, when they're electing 16 each year, as Livy is saying, probably what this indicates is that now the standard annual military levy on the part of the Roman state it has now doubled to four legions, and they've, they've sort of reconfigured the command structure so that now there are four military tribunes assigned to the four legions. Uh, so that would suggest that um, with the increase of uh, available manpower uh, on, in the aftermath of uh, the, the, um, the First Samnite War, and the, uh, especially the, the Latin War through 348, Rome now has much larger manpower resources, and, and they're now drawing upon that. And in 310, the very next year, Livy uh, starts describing how the Romans, for the next several years, while they were fighting against the Samnites, also were fighting to the north of Roman territory in the area of central and northern Etruria and also in the area of Umbria, sort of in the more northerly area of the of the Athens. This, this is clearly indicating that Rome is now a very young, very powerful, very vigorous state. Uh, uh, and um, they're able to fight the Samnites and defeat them. And at the same time, they're able to conduct successful military wars at the same time against Etruscans, against Etruscans and uh, and Umbrians. So the, the war finally ends in 304 BC uh, against the Samnites, and at this point the Samnites have pretty much been encircled uh, by, uh, by either Roman colonies or Rome's allies, uh, and they are uh, pretty much in a uh, uh, sort of submissive, uh, forced to be in a uh, submissive uh, state uh, with respect to the, uh, to the Romans. A few wrap-up questions on on um, what, what you shared there Gary in this um, um, giving treatment to this this war um, the under the the, the the yoke the first instance that you cited there is that the earliest instance of that exercise that you've ever read in uh, in history said another way is it believed that the the Samnites um, uh, in, 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 invented that that tactic or, or, or are the first to, to use that? that tactic in the records? What tactic are you referring to? Sending this, the defeated uh, soldiers under the under the yoke. 
Um, I think it's the it's the earliest one that, that, that I can recall. Okay, and is it? Um, okay, yeah. And, and and let me just add, add here. Our term "subjugate" in English uh, actually comes from the Latin verb "sub jugare," and it literally means to send under the yoke. And so the, uh, our our uh, that verb today, you know, meaning to, to to conquer someone, to subjugate, uh, is actually uh, our uh, taking over of the Latin verb, which literally means to send someone under, under the yoke, which you do at the uh, at the very it is sort of the final concluding ritual to uh, 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 demonstrate that you're defeated in India. Yeah, you you've been defeated, buddy. In this period, um, Rome's allied communities is growing. You mentioned Capua, Praeneste, Tibor. Is it is it known if soldiers from those communities were provided for the Second Samnite War? Yeah, that was sort of the standard agreement that the Romans made uh, when they established these bilateral treaties. So they, they were always, um, what I guess we would call offensive, defensive alliances in which the two states pledged to assist one another uh, if they were attacked by an enemy or if they happened to be waging a war against an enemy. And um, uh, by this stage in Rome's history, Rome is now such a big state that when it um, establishes such a bilateral alliance with another state, it's not it's not really what we would think of as an equal alliance. Uh, it might be in theory an equal alliance, but in practice it's not an equal alliance because most of these states, all of these states that are entering into these agreements uh, are, are relatively small with respect to Rome, and Rome is now uh, it, it has now reached a stage where it has systematized uh, and fully organized um, warfare and uh, integrated the whole um, um, a practice of waging war in, into Roman society so that warfare has now become the uh, sort of major uh, uh, business of the Roman state. And so when Rome has a bilateral alliance with a much smaller state, uh, and since Rome is constantly fighting wars to continue expanding, it, it's an alliance that really works to the advantage of the Romans uh, and to the disadvantage of these smaller states, because Rome can now have a whole bunch of these smaller states aligned with them, with them and whenever they, they, they wage a war, which is basically all the time, um, they then uh, expect to receive a certain uh, quota of uh, soldiers from those allied states to uh, supplement Rome's uh, own uh, citizen forces. Okay, last question, then we should probably move over to the domestic affairs to give ourselves enough time in this episode. Um, is it clear, you, 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 sp you spoke about certainly uh, Rome's size and might by this point, is it is it clear how the war actually wrapped up? How the how this this war between Rome and the Samnites 
ended in 304? Um, yeah, the Romans succeed in uh, fighting their way into the heartland, that is, at the mountainous heartland of the Samnites, uh, and, and capturing a, a major uh, place there, and, 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 and it basically demonstrated to the Samnites that, yeah, we, it, it's time to end the war. We've, uh, uh, <laughs> we, we really um, can't um, stand up against the Roman life, so it, it, it's uh, they basically throw in the towel and um, make the peace that they that they can with, with the Romans as as, uh, as allies. Okay, so roughly for the most part, three forty nine to three hundred BCE. What do you want to cover on the domestic affairs side with Rome? Well, Rome is growing as a state during this time period. Um, and so we, we have some indications of certain changes uh, taking place uh, in Rome. Um, we've, we've got indications of uh, Rome becoming a, a, um, a society that um, now has access to more land. Uh, so for like the ordinary Roman citizen, this would have been a time of uh, uh, sort of enlarged opportunities where a person could uh, maybe be uh, become a member of one of the colonies and be able to uh, get a good good piece of land. Um, um, and, and we have some uh, uh, some other in indications of Roman industry in the city of Rome beginning to uh, sort of pick up. Um, Rome is now becoming a, a large state, and as, as a result of that, becoming sort of the, the focus of uh, economic activity. Um, and uh, one of the, the earliest indications we have of that is a, a find uh, known as the, um, um, excuse me, the, um, <laughs> the, the Figaroni Kissa, I think of it, <laughs> um, the Figaroni Kissa that now is in the, um, mm -hmm. the Villa Julia Museum uh, in Rome. It's a very nice, large, uh, fairly large, uh, it's like a great big bronze can. Um, and it's very, very beautifully decorated on, on, on the outside. Uh, and it was uh, made in Rome uh, around uh, sometime during the, uh, the Second Saturday War. Uh, and it's one of the first major sort of artistic artifacts that we have surviving from this early period. Um, so it's, uh, it's indicative of, of Rome becoming a more prosperous uh, state and, and one that, that is flourishing economically with the various forms of industry uh, and such. Uh, in terms of the uh, sort of political scene uh, internally, um, the, the one big thing that now emerges um, during um, uh, the, this time period uh, is the emergence of a, of a, uh, a new kind of uh, Roman aristocracy. Uh, and, and this resulted from the power sharing agreement um, between patricians and plebeians going back to the year 366 BC, when the that the Romans ended the practice of electing lords of military tribunes with consular power at the consulship, uh, and when they do, they work out this uh, arrangement in which whenever they hold the elections every year for the consuls, uh, there are a few candidates, 
competing against one another for one slot, and, and those are members of patrician families. And there are other uh, competitors competing against one another for the other position, and, and they come from very prominent plebeian families. And so uh, from 366 onwards, we, we have this power-sharing arrangement between the uh, elite patricians and the elite uh, plebeians, and it results in the emergence uh, over the course of, especially we see it in, in this time period here, of, um, uh, of a, a new style of, uh, of aristocracy um, in, in which uh, we have uh, prominent uh, patrician families and very prominent uh, plebeian uh, families. And uh, that, that the Romans uh, referred to this this, this aristocracy, aristocracy, of course, is a Greek word, uh, but Romans uh, refer to this um, uh, patrician, plebeian aristocracy as the nobility, um, and uh, that, that, that's uh, something very important that, that, that emerges at, at this time. And was that the election of con consuls? Yes. Okay, and is that um, is that one one year terms the the two consuls each year for one for 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 a one year term? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and if someone is entirely new to the the terms patricians and plebeians, can you explain what uh, the definitions of those are? Oh my goodness, that that is the that that is sort of the uh, holy grail. Of early Roman history, trying to figure that out. Um, um, how much time we got? We probably have, and this is this is a uh, rough rough estimate, but we probably have uh, seven seven minutes. We certainly have seven minutes, Gary. Maybe nine nine minutes to uh, wrap up the chat to keep it under sixty minutes for everybody. All right, I'll try to do it. Okay. Okay. Well, these terms, patrician and plebeians. Um, are terms that conjure up in modern people's minds all sorts of misconceptions. They we begin to use the term patrician to refer to someone from the upper class. Patrician to us means it's synonymous with upper class. Plebeian uh, is synonymous with commoner, low class in, in our English language these days. And it's truly unfortunate because in Roman society, um, for the um, uh, for, for the Republic, um, the, these terms um, they they had um, special meaning that don't necessarily coincide with our expectations expectations today. And so, um, when uh, when when a person today usually reads something about Roman history and they come upon the term patrician, they automatically think uh, noble, aristocrat. Well, I just explained to you that from the, 300, from the uh, late 300s onwards, uh, nobility is not synonymous with patrician status. Um, we don't really know how the this distinction between patricians and plebeians came about. It's one of the most um, uh, uh, difficult things to understand in early 
And in fact, we can only identify 19 families in later Roman times as patrician. There may have been more in earlier times, we just don't know. And exactly how that, exactly how this designation came about, we don't know. My own view is that patrician status came about in early Roman, very, very early Roman society as a result of certain families having the sort of hereditary privilege to hold certain priestly offices. And so that there was a certain set of families that had a certain kind of special distinction attached to them because they held priestly offices in the Roman state. And that all other families who didn't have this sort of hereditary privilege were not patrician, that they were in later classification times, they were known as plebeians. So anyway, that's probably about it. And with these patrician families in later times, it's pretty clear that some of them were very prominent, very wealthy, very powerful. Some of them were relatively obscure. And plebeian status was something that was not synonymous with low status, low economic status. What we find in very, very early societies in which a community is starting off at a very, very low level of economic development, basically everybody's farmers or raising animals, and there's very little opportunity to acquire wealth in any way, any other means. What we find usually in those societies is that there's always a small number of families in that community who by accident or whatever, wind up having a little bit more land than everybody else, maybe a little bit more in the way of animals or whatever. And they are able to convert that into political leadership within their community. And so they succeed in establishing themselves as special, as what you could call aristocrats, or in the case of the Romans, you could say maybe that's patrician status. And everybody else is not. And then as a society grows, and there's more economic activity available in terms of manufacturing and trade for the acquisition of wealth, what happens is that those original sort of land elite types now have other people who have just as much, if not more money than they do, that they have acquired through manufacturing and trade. And usually we can see this in a number of Greek city-states. So we think the same sort of thing clearly must have happened in Rome since it was emerging as sort of a city-state environment. What we see in a number of city-states is that you start off at a very, very primitive level, and you've got maybe a handful of families within a community that establish themselves as the elite because they've got a little bit more land, and they claim to have, let's say, superior genealogical descent or something like that. 
and everybody else is, uh, is, is not. Uh, and then as the community grows uh, in uh, uh, manufacturing and trade, uh, uh, allow people to uh, have other economic opportunities, there arises uh, people who are just as uh, wealthy, um, or maybe even more so, than, than the old landed um, elite. And when that happens, then there then usually sets up that sets up a conflict between the, the, the sort of nouveau riche, as it were, uh, and, and, and the old and the and the, the old wealth, the old wealth and the new wealth. And the old wealth always want to hold on to their uh, their, their primitive uh, privileges and not let any any of the nouveau riche in to, to share that same status. But what always happens is that the, the old rich have to get away to the new rich and have to invite, and, and they, they have to be a part of that. And so um, that's probably what, what, what happened in, in, the, in the case of Rome, that, that in the early days, there was a very small group of families that succeeded in uh, defining themselves in a special way. And I think it had something to do with the, uh, um, the, the holding of uh, priestly offices. Uh, and then as the Roman state and society grows, uh, and there's more economic opportunities. Uh, there's eventually uh, other uh, elite families that arise as well. Uh, and eventually, uh, as a result of that, there's sort of a redefinition of what elite status is. So by the time we get to the 300s, uh, like I say, the Romans now have a new uh, idea of elite status, and they call it nobility. Uh, and it, it uh, consists of... Um, uh, old traditional patrician families uh, and um, uh, newly arisen, very wealthy, uh, prominent uh, plebeian families, and is reflected in the political system by this power sharing arrangement that the Romans uh, agreed upon in the year 366 BC. Probably a couple questions, Gary, that will need to be inside of a context of, of closing to keep the episode under 60 minutes. Is there any examples in the records of a person or family in this peri period or around this period having their designation change, the patrician or the plebeian designation? There's... No, there, there really is the, uh, the, the earliest... Uh, well, there's one, there's one possible... Um, but uh, I don't think it's, it, it can be explained a number of ways. And to explain it in terms of change the status is uh, is probably the uh, the least uh, likely. Uh, the, the, the earliest instance that we have of uh, a person changing from attrition to plebeian status to the time of uh, well, actually, it's, it's prior, it's prior, it's prior to the Hannibalic War, uh, so but late late two hundred BC, so it's a, basically a century later from what we're talking about. Okay, so to emphasize this uh, segment, Gary, in this period, two consuls began being elected every year. One was a patrician was labeled a patrician and then one was labeled as a plebeian and that that 
process, this, this, this function of uh, elections for, for um, uh, politics, these offices, that occurred in the period that we're speaking about. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Good to wrap up the conversation at this point, Gary? I guess that the power sharing arrangement lasts for about 200 years. It finally ends in, I think, 172, when we have first, uh, first year in which we have two plebeians elected council, because by that time, many of the relatively few patrician families uh, are now beginning to die out, and, and uh, they're just far more prominent plebeians than there are patricians. And so the Romans sort of say, ah, the hell with it. Uh, there aren't enough patricians to justify the power sharing arrangement, and so um, henceforth the consulship can be uh, the two uh, consuls each year can be can be whatever. All right, as always, Gary. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, thank you very much. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Forsyth wrote, it's entitled "A Critical History of Early Rome." From prehistory to the first Punic War. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gary and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.